everyone, and welcome to the Races IndyCar podcast. My name is J.R. Hildebrand. I'm here with my co-host, Jack Benyon, and we're ready to break down an intriguing race at Portland last weekend that definitely had some title implications as we head into the final two on this West Coast swing. Hello, JR, and hello to everybody joining us. Hope you're enjoying the, the podcast still, and if you're here, then chances are you are, so that's good news. Make sure you check out last week's episode with Oliver Askew, who's doing the last three races of the season with Ray Hall, Letterman Landigan. We had a good chat with him, and also uh, JR and I had a, a good chat about the last three races of the season and uh, some of the bits of silly season stuff that was going on, so make sure you check that out. But yeah, obviously, this week we're here to talk about Portland, so at this point in the show, I usually kind of break down roughly what happened in the race, although that's going to be quite difficult to do in uh, 30 seconds or so, but we'll, we'll give it a try. We'll give it a try. So Alex blows up pole position and reduced Pato Awards points lead to nine with a bonus point for pole, but a clash between Scott Dixon and Felix Rosenquist caught out Palou as all three went into the runoff at turn one, along with Alexander Rossi and all was at on the first lap in the first corner. So that made for quite an interesting race, especially uh, diverging strategies. The drivers who made the corner were given the right of way. So O'Ward came from seventh to lead the race while Pelot led the contenders restarting 16th on back. Luckily for them, the resulting pit stop that they took put them on a three-stop strategy, which became the kind of leading strategy after all the cautions and worked out really well for, for those guys. In the later stops, Pelot jumped Newgarden and Dixon with an overcut, which gave him the win effectively. Although there was a late restart that he had to fight through. And that was ahead of Alexander Rossi, who scored his first podium of the season and ahead of Scott Dixon in third as well. So the restart, restart in order caused quite a bit of controversy as Dixon, who was hit, and Pelot, who was forced into the runoff by Dixon because of the contact, were put to the back. JR, how do you feel about how the kind of restart played out there and, and the kind of order that was put together after the restart? Well, I guess, you know, they, it sounded like race control was pretty clear about how this was going to work, which was basically that for, for whatever reason, they had a set of timelines. They actually did a good job of explaining this on the broadcast. I think Townsend was talking about it, that they, they have a set of timelines that it was just sort of black and white. Like if you crossed the set of timelines that, that, you know, showed that you were on track, then you got priority. If you went off, if you didn't, basically, if you didn't cut through those timelines, um, you were off track and you were going to be put behind the cars that uh, had made it through the corner, you know, proper on the racing, on the racing surface. Um, I guess we could debate whether or not that's, that needs some more nuance to really make sense because I think Dixon's gripe is basically fair here, which is, it wasn't his fault that he ended up in the, in the, in the runoff. You know, you could, you can kind of imagine a different version of this where, there's some more subjective fault applied to what's going on because we have that happen all the time in all kinds of incidents on track, whether it's avoidable contact or not, or all of these kinds of different, different types of circumstances that come up throughout a race weekend. Um, it's actually a little bit, uh, it's sort of rare that we don't have that type of thinking applied to these sort of situations, but it was laid out that this is how it was going to work. They did it how they said they were going to do it. And in essence, the way that this ended up working out, there are some races earlier in the season. I think Barber was one of them where we had a similar situation that cars that got kind of screwed up at the beginning of the race ended up at the back. And in this particular situation, because there were so many cars that got moved to the back, you know, from like 16th back pitted, took that early caution 
they don't from where they from getting moved to the back that's just like a free pit stop like they don't they just get to now know that they can make it easily on two stops and open up their windows massively and the guys because at the front were, have to save fuel the guys at the fuel have to, well, they right. have to save the, fuel the guys at the front, at the front so. like if they pit, it's it's a huge risk for them to pit in that situation because you're losing a ton of track position um you don't this this was an event where it's maybe more so than other tracks like Indy GP kind of comes to mind. Mid Ohio comes to mind places where there aren't typically a lot of yellows Portland. We haven't raced at Portland. They don't have that data set. They don't really know. It's sort of an easy place for guys to just like go off. It's, it's not a, uh, it's a fairly uh, high risk track from that perspective. There's lots of places you can go off and run into something like there's not a lot of runoff. It's a lot of grass runoff. Um, so I just think there was, you know, uh, uh, it's a hard call to make from the front of the pack to take that early stop. Um, and basically, like I said, because there were so many cars that were at the back that got put to the back in that situation, they all just pitted. They all take zero penalty for taking that pit stop from where they're at at that point. Um, and you saw that play out to the end of the race, basically that the, the guys at the front, a bunch of them kind of tried to make it work on two stops. Most of them bailed. I was surprised that so many cars bailed off of two stop strategy and didn't just say, forget it. Like I've got, I've got the track position of 15 cars. So I've got, you know, at, by the time that they were halfway through that first stint, they've gapped Dixon, Polo, Rossi, that group of cars by whatever, 10 or 15 seconds, even if they start, you know, falling back like a rock through the pack, they, they basically just have to not fall all the way back to where those cars are and start getting passed by those cars that were still in 14th, 15th, whatever, at that point in the race. Uh, but the reality of it was basically nobody did. Newgarden did, Harvey did, Erickson, I guess. Those are, those were the guys that that didn't get put to the back at the beginning and stayed on the two stop and sort of made it work through the event. Um, in the end, I, you know, I guess my, to answer the actual question, which is what do I think about this from Dixon and Pelot's perspective and all those guys, I think that it worked for them. Basically. I mean, it's obvious to obvious to say that after the race, but, um, in the big scheme of things, the fact that all of them got penalized and they all got on this alternate strategy made it so that like half the field was on this alternate strategy and um, your odds of making that work when you're, when you are all the fastest cars, cause they were up front um, was reasonable. It, it would have been interesting to see how this had played out. If like it had turned into more of a half and half kind of thing, if race control had made it subjective. And so they left, you know, Polo and Dixon up at the front and, you know, and put Rosenquist and whoever else at the back. And, um, you know, you would have had more fast cars on, on different strategies, but, um, you know, in the end, I guess the fact that they just did what they said they were going to do makes it hard to argue with the actual call. Yeah. I think the, there's other championships out there that use a more subjective approach where they make decisions based on precedent and, you know, take each incident case by case. And I don't think that always works. That that format also has its problems as well as what IndyCar did at the weekend where they said, this is what's going to happen. And regardless of the circumstance, this is what we're going to do. 
So, you know, the, like you said, basically the only thing IndyCar could have done in that situation was make a call on who was to blame there and who wasn't to blame and give those cars the, the benefit of the doubt, Polo and, and Dixon, for example, and let those guys go. But that, I think if the race had played out, like you said, it would have been interesting to see what strategy they stuck to and, and how they went about it, but it could well have stitched them up and cost them, you know, a, a lot of points in the championship. So it actually, even though they're both complaining about it afterwards, it, it worked out very well in, in their favour. It was just a, a kind of weird race that, that played out that way. But I, I agree actually with, with um, the kind of points that you made there. And I think it just baffles me that every year at Portland we have the same issues and we get three or four people who just barrel into that corner where you just think, you know, obviously it's easy for me to sit here and you can give a much more kind of subjective opinion on this, but you know, it's easy for me to sit here and say, why are these guys missing the breaking point by so much? But you know, when we sit here and talk about the competitiveness of IndyCar and how high the standard is right now, and we're constantly praising these drivers for, for how good they are to see some of the kind of the, the, the poor driving standards that we've seen over the past few weeks in certain instances has been, you know, quite disappointing to see, but I guess it made for an interesting race at the end and kept things uh, interesting all the way to the finish. It is true. I, I, you know, watching the, we had said this in the, in the pre-race pod, the starts and restarts were going to be a big part of how this plays out. And, and obviously that was, that's not like a really dramatic thing to, to predict going to Portland, but it ended up being the case that it, it was surprising to me to see how many drivers uh, and, you know, and I've, I've been on the wrong end of this, but there's other tracks that we go to at Indy GP is another good example of it. it's a long run down in the first corner, super slow first corner. You get, you can get four wide by the time you get there. Cause it's a huge draft all the way down the straightaway into the first corner. We just, you got, you have incidents for sure. Like it's, it's not like you never have a first corner accident there. It's, it's frequent that you have cars taking the bail out and, and doing all this kind of stuff. But at Portland, it, it just seems like every, and this is dating back to cart and champ car days here. It's like how we used to talk about Cleveland that for whatever reason, it's just that little bit extra wide down the front straight and a little bit extra narrow going through the first, you know, through the first corner that um, it invites these like waves of cars crashing into each other um through the whole thing i mean yeah like felix being that late into the first corner and getting into the back of dixon as he's i guess trying to the way that it sounded like in the post race sounded like dixon was trying to he was at least claiming that he was trying to bail out of passing polo at that point so maybe he checked up a little earlier than felix thought he was going to but that was not going to work out. I mean, that was lucky just not to turn into a, you know, four car accident of among the first four cars in the field. Um, so I actually thought Felix did a great job of having just that little bit of spatial awareness to know that he can basically get off the brakes and just completely ditch all of that and miss everybody. Um, but then I hate to say it, but Grosjean coming in, I mean, watching the replays from the middle of the pack are just like, what are we doing here? I mean, there's two or three cars that were just not under any circumstances going to make the second apex, you know, and then it becomes this pinball, you know, it's, it was, it was kind of ridiculous. I thought to see how, how far away from making the corner it was, it wasn't like, Oh, it got all bunched up. And so they're going 20 miles an hour slower than everybody thinks they're going to. And so it's just a bunch of cars kind of jostling and bonking into each other. It's like, Oh no, there's like a car that's steaming through an entire, you know, like 
total bowling pin style, um, you know, through, through the corner. So I don't know why that is at this point, because it's, it, it also wasn't among a bunch of drivers that are like fighting for their gigs next year or something, you know, I mean, it's not, it doesn't strike me that there's that many guys that are in like desperation mode at this point during the season either. So it, it, it is a bit of a, a head scratcher that it continues yeah. to happen at this place. Yeah. I think I was quite interested in, in looking at this and obviously there are other tracks that have runoff at turn one, but I think it is particularly significant that Portland does have this runoff at turn one because it's a great point. It, it's, it's what led to basically all of this conversation happening, isn't it? Because, you know, I appreciate uh, Polo and Dixon complaining about the, the the kind of, well, and Rossi as well also complained about it, even though he was another one who just totally wasn't making that corner under any circumstances whatsoever. Um, but yeah, I mean, the, the runoff creates this kind of scenario where if we're talking about a, a start at mid-Ohio or somewhere like that, you know, if that, if that would have happened there, then those cars go off onto the grass and they go to the back of the field anyway. And yeah. the person who the person who is at fault for that incident gets a penalty that is quite severe. And then that's the end of it. It's up to you to fight back from it. So it's, it's the runoff that's causing this issue because all of the drivers basically bailed out fairly quickly and got back into a decent position where they could get back onto the track in the top 10. And we're like, all right, (laughs) you know, we've, we've kind of missed this massive kind of Miley Cyrus wrecking ball coming through turn one, but also, you know, we, we, we're still in this, you know, we've not been taken out of the race amazingly. And then to be dropped to the back, I couldn't understand, especially at that point for Alex Blow, who, you know, is 50 points to the deficit of Pato Ward at that point. And, you know, if, if Pato executes a perfect two-stop strategy there and everything goes to his, everything goes to plan for him, then there's a good chance Alex is well outside the top 10 and Pato, you know, takes at least a 30 or 40 point lead away from that race. So, you know, it's, it's, I think it's difficult to, to kind of pick on this race a little bit because there's so many different kind of nuances and circumstances that happened over the, the over the course of that start that you have to kind of break down that it just gets into a bit of a a bit of a minefield of trying to work out you know what's going on there at least we can say with all of this argument lately about track limits that portland's always been this way so it is it is the old school version of portland they haven't made this any any more or less it's they've just always crashed in the first corner of portland so at least we're we're keeping up that standard at this particular racetrack, racetrack. So I guess we've mentioned him and the real loser in all of this was Pato Award. His pace was really poor on both sets of the tyres really uh, across the race. He managed to obviously hold the lead at the start, but then obviously quite quickly bailed on the on the two-stop, if they were even considering a two-stop, which I don't think they probably were at that point, knowing how that's gone for them this season at, at different times. You mentioned Barbara earlier on, perfect example, that we know the the kind of, the tire life is not really there for that team and, and they do struggle to make things like, um, you know, extending the, the tire life, you know, they, they struggle to make that work basically. So he really struggled um, even on fresh tires and when he didn't have to save fuel and he was basically free to push, he was struggling to pass cars and actually lost a few spots a bit later on when he predicted that caution for, uh, for Dalton Keller and, and Callum Eilert about three quarters, well, about halfway through the race. Um, he, he obviously predicted that and pitted in, in anticipation of that caution. But then after that, didn't have the pace to to make his his fresh tires or the the lack of need and safety will work for him really. So uh, he finished behind his rivals, obviously Plo won the race and Dixon who was third, but also Newgarden who took fifth in the end, 
by making that strategy you mentioned earlier work. He, he went longer on that first stint and, and, and kind of made him brought himself back into contention from 18th on the grid after a absolute nightmare for Penske where none of their cars made the, the top 12 battle in qualifying, never mind the, the fast six. And also Pato was behind uh, Marcus Ericsson as well, who, who made the most of that late caution. I think you mentioned him going also on that strategy, but that late caution really saved him where he pitted and was just coming out of the pits as the caution came out. And then obviously everyone backed up. So he didn't lose as many spots as he, he probably should have done. So we should outline the kind of point situation. I think at this point with only two races left now, I think we need to, sort of keep the, the listeners, um, you know, informed what's going on there, JR. So we've got obviously Pillow in the lead. Pato's 25 points behind. Newgarden's 34 points behind. Dixon's 49 points behind. And Ericsson is 75 points behind. So there's 110 points on offer so far over the next two weekends. I think we're looking at a Palo award title fight now with Newgarden and Dixon in the hunt. But, you know, they need the first two to retire from a race, I think, over the next two to, to really have a chance. Do you reckon we can rule Newgarden or Dixon out at this point? Or are you kind of feeling like Newgarden's still definitely in with a chance here? And, and maybe you think Dixon's in with a chance as well? It's pretty hard to say. I guess I would, my my general perspective on this is to agree that I think for the most part, this is between Polo and, and Award. Um, I think Newgarden's still in it with a shot, basically, just because we've seen crazier things happen. You know, a lot of crazy stuff has happened. A lot of big point swings have happened just over the last handful of races. Uh, this one could have been one of those races where there was a number of instances where between Pillow and Award, and that you, you could just substitute any of the title contenders into those two spots that you suddenly end up with differing strategies. And if the race ends at that point in the race, or you get caution that comes out or whatever, this is just the way that IndyCar works these days is that, you know, suddenly then you've got a, you, you've got a 34 point deficit that turns into a five point deficit going into the final round. Um, th this was a weekend to me that really told, told everybody that Alex below is here and is as capable as any of these guys of winning the championship. Um, I, I, it was my personal point of view that these are hard, these are Portland and Laguna in particular, less so Long Beach, but these two road courses were going to be tough for Pato. Um, I, the fact that he qualified as well as he did, didn't surprise me, but just watching his qualifying lap even was like, Oh my God, that thing is going to be awful in the race. Um, he, I, and that it cooled off a ton for race day. And that didn't really seem to help. Like. I can't even imagine how bad this would have been, how, how hard it would have been for Pato if it had stayed hot on race day. That just looked like a nightmare. And those are things that, I mean, it's things that it, the a car being that loose is something that you can adjust. Like you can, you can change things for that. And a lot of other guys were like, clearly the Penske guys, I felt like were battling under you. Like they were on the wrong side of it the other way and just could not extract lap time out of the car when it mattered in those hot conditions, you know, the Ganassi and Andretti cars seemed like they were kind of somewhere in between, like they weren't, they weren't loose, but they still had some front bite. Like they were able to get the front tire to work, um, in those conditions. That's where they just seemed to have a leg up on everybody else. But, um, Laguna is at least as bad as that from a tire wear perspective, it seems weird. It's, I, I guess to me, it's uncommon in IndyCar that that is such a continual issue for any particular team, just that it's that consistent that we see this. Um, but 
it's it's consistent enough that it seems like that's going to happen again and that'll put pato on the back foot for sure um i guess i would say you know new garden strikes me as he's still if if they're good at laguna he's really good at long beach and that's enough to stay in this Palo has had every ounce of what dixon's been able to go find this year, you know, save for like qualifying at Indy, you know, I mean, there's, there's been very few situations outside of these handful of places where you see like Dixon's magic that, that they haven't been in lockstep with each other. So to me, you know, Pelot can basically do anything Dixon can do at these last two events. Um, and if, and they've coming to Portland, I did not expect Alex having never been there to be, the guy absolutely without question all the way through the weekend, but he was, so there's no, I mean, at that point, it's like, well, there's no reason he can't do that at Laguna now at this point, like the fact that he's never raced there, obviously doesn't matter. Um, and they've been good enough at all the street circuits. I mean, they've been fast at all the street circuits throughout the course of the year. So, okay. Maybe, maybe he's a half a quarter of a step off at long beach. Cause he's actually never been there or whatever, but, um, I just, I'd have a, I have a hard time coming up with an argument against Pelo winning the championship at this point. Yeah, I've got to agree with you. And I think it's important to point out at this point that award was fastest at the Portland test recently that the, the guys came there and obviously speed is just not an issue with that team, but there's just so much more to it than that. As we've you know discussed at various points over the season with them trying to get that car in the right window and it being difficult to drive. And especially in these situations where it seems to be um, you know, deciding when to go for that three-stop strategy or deciding when to to bail on the two or just even just the scenario of that happening, they they seem to struggle with making that work. And I think, you know, they, they had a good Laguna Seca test at the start of the year where Juan Pablo Montoya was also with them. So that's always going to be a good thing to have him along. But I just wonder, you know, they obviously felt good after the Portland test and haven't quite, you know, nailed it over the course of the weekend. Obviously, Felix did a, a great job in the race and looked a lot more at home in the car than than even Pato did over the course of, of that race. But we know Felix is extremely good at Portland and, and has been in the past. So it's kind of expecting him to be a lot closer to Pato, if not, you know, in, in kind of Pato's window for the for the course of that race based on, you know, what we've seen from him before. But yeah, I think they've all tested at Laguna Seca now. So I think we basically need to not read much into those tests because... <laughs> obviously Portland's proven that that you know it's not quite uh, a full picture of of what to expect and I'm really excited for Laguna Seca to be honest Joe really excited because I just I really don't know who's going to turn up there and and really be able to 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 get things going and even Long Beach is going to be fantastic for the reasons that you mentioned that none of the guys are going to be able to test their own and before I think that's the only potential Achilles heel for Alex Pelo is he's not been if, if there's been any weakness this year it's been the street courses and obviously we're going to a brand new one that he's not been to before again like Detroit and he's going to have to deliver to the highest level to be able to win this championship, regardless of what his points that you know margin is going into that race. So, if someone's in with a chance there, they're going to be uh, you know chasing Alex Blow down, and it's going to be a, a a really intense battle to the finish. I can't disagree with Pelo being the 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 kind of contender though at this point, even with that in mind. I think he's, as you said, I think it's the all the drivers every single year speak about Scott Dixon and being able to match his consistency and you know, replicate what he's able to do in a championship scenario every year. He doesn't necessarily always win the most amount of races. He definitely doesn't score the most pole positions anymore. But over the course of a year, it takes the maximum amount of points in a race weekend. 
And it's easy to sit here and say that, but to do that is actually very difficult, as we know, because otherwise everybody would be doing it. But Alex Palou has kind of taken that and, and ran with it this year and, and consistently been better than Scott Dixon at being consistent. So I think if we look at the uh, at least the last two races where he's had problems, then his championship league could be you know a lot bigger. And I think you could genuinely kind of make that argument that his lead should be bigger at this point. But yeah, like you said, I think... Obviously, we're we're both quite excited about the, the the championship finale, but it's just we've got two different, very different races coming up with lots of different potential contenders who we've seen excel in different situations, and it's really going to make for a, you know a really exciting last two races. All right, there's a few other bits we should mention, and feel free to dive in at any point here, Jr. Graham Rahal had a signature Graham Rahal 2021 slash 2022 slash the last four years kind of race didn't he really he was looked like the man to beat and even when uh, that inopportune caution came out in the middle of the race it looked like they might even been able to save fuel and, and kind of use that to their advantage and, and kind of make it work but it didn't turn out that way obviously they had to pit a bit earlier than everybody else and just didn't really have the the kind of the pace that we'd seen earlier in the race when they were when they were back in traffic so disappointing to see him have such a strong race again and fail to to end that win streak after all of the bad luck that he's had this year but one of them things. His teammate for this weekend, Oliver Askew, he was uh, making his debut for Ray Hall Letterman Lanigan, as we discussed, and was undone by a spin at the first corner, which, to be honest, I didn't see him get tapped or anything like that. Kind of looked like he just uh, carried a bit too much speed onto the apex there and the car just unsettled. And and obviously uh, that was the end of that, sent him to the to the back, but worked his way forward and, and did a good job to, to kind of come back from that and learn a bit, I think, about the about the team and the car and just working through strategy with his, uh, with his new guys there. So be interesting to see if that uh, kind of improves things over the next couple of races. And we also talked about Callum Eilat's maiden outing with Hunkos Hollinger in the last episode. So go back and check that out. If you want to hear us talk about his kind of chances since then, we've learned that he's going to be doing the last two races of the season as well. So that's going to be interesting in terms of learning curve him. Obviously it was Hunkos Hollinger's well, Hunkos, I guess you can say, because it's, it was their first road course since Hollinger, you know, has obviously joined for this year and, and they haven't done a road course since 2018. So uh, obviously the team's new and coming back to IndyCar for the first time since the, the 2019 Indy 500. And we were expecting, you know, a bit of a slow start and caution not to expect too much out of Callum and the team in that situation. But I thought the pace was really good. The, the lap times looked really good. His best lap time was right up there with, you know, everybody else you're kind of looking at in that window. And obviously they had an electrical problem, but got back out and finished the race and, and got some extra laps under their under their belt at the end as well, which was really good. Jack Harvey took fourth, which equals his best result of the year. So I felt I felt like we should uh, I felt like I should mention that. Obviously, he's heading into his last two races with my Shank Racing before we expect him to sign with Ray Hall Letterman Lanigan for 2022. So nice to see him doing well and finally making an alternate strategy work. It feels like, I don't know about you, if you feel like this way, JR, but it feels like Jack Harvey's done an alternate strategy <laughs> in every single race this year. So to see one actually come off and give him a good result was was something nice to see because you always like a gambler, don't you? You've always got to back the gambler and enjoy the the kind of outrageousness of some of the, the plays that they've made over the season. It's glad to see, you know, one kind of payoff. And one I definitely wanted to ask you about, JR, because we've not discussed him for a little while, is Jimmy Johnson, who was 20th. Not his best result in, in IndyCar so far, but to me, that felt like as competitive as he's been um, at any point in the season, to be honest. And his best lap time was right up there with that kind of middle pack. Even some of the guys who finished in the top 10, he was he was quicker than or, or on par with, basically. And, you know, I think that's really impressive given 
we expected maybe a little bit more from him at the Indy GP based on how much testing he'd done there and how many laps he'd actually racked up and expected him maybe to be a little bit better than he was after that race. And, you know, this is just a fact of his transition that we're going to get races where he excels and races where he struggles. And that's just going to be part of it and something that you have to accept. But I really felt like Portland, although earlier in the race, it did seem to get past quite, uh, quite easily a little bit, you know, earlier on, or maybe it was just letting some of those leaders pass because he knew they were quicker cars. I'm not really sure exactly what his mindset was there, but later in the race, he was a lot more, you know, competitive and having a bit more of a dice with the guys around him and obviously, you know, finished pretty well. So what, what do you kind of make, let, let's go kind of over the past few races really, because we've not discussed him for a little while. And how, how have you kind of interpreted his, his, his recent form and, and what we're seeing from him now? I think going back to the Indy GP, I think that was, although it didn't really come through in the result at any particular point, just watching the practice sessions in particular, I think that was sort of a breakthrough weekend for him, actually, more so than, than this is. This, is, this to me is this weekend was sort of an extension of, of where he got to it in, at the Indy GP, uh, just showcasing a degree of comfort in the cockpit and you, you could see, I mean, I, I remember so clearly at the beginning of the year at Barber, just kind of what, you know, watching the onboards, watching him drive the car thinking he just, it strikes me that he just doesn't yet really know, like have a intuitive feeling for when he can really commit to throttle and would deal with the car kind of squirming a little underneath him and, understanding like the slip angle of the tire and all of these little things that just get you those next, you know, for him at, at that point, the next like six tenths, you know, that it's just, it's probably just a little bit every corner. It's not like he's doing anything dramatically wrong in any particular place, but in qualifying, he looked like, you know, he, he sort of was driving the car, how you might watch one of the front runners drive the car in the middle of the second stint of the race, you know, that it's just, okay, I'm just trying to be easy on everything. And and for him, that was not because he's trying to do that. It's just because he didn't yet have a real feeling for where that limit is. It's interesting. We, we talked to Marcus, you know, a few pods ago, just about the difference between driving an F1 car to, you know, coming and driving in an Indy car. And we've heard this from um, Kevin Magnuson, going from like a super high grip car to a car that moves around underneath you to those guys in IndyCar and then Kevin's uh, situation, the IMSA car moving around more is sort of, you'd think that that gives you more feel, but in some respects it gives you like less feel because it's harder to kind of understand where the limit of the car is because it feels like it's always just kind of bouncing around and moving. Jimmy's coming from the other side of it where the car is never totally stable but it's got this really you know the i think the the stock car has a little bit more of just this constant like variable slip and yaw that you're dealing with and everything's happening you have to be just as reactive to it i think but it's hap it's all happening a little slower like you've got a lot of inertia and momentum in the car because it's bigger and it's heavier and it's it's instantly can overpower the tire so for him coming to do this it's it's more reactive. It's got more grip. It's got a more sensitive kind of limit to where the grip of the car is. Understandably, that's just not an easy thing to really understand where that limit is. And it's worth noting that an Indy car, as much as we see these things kind of dancing around, it's not like a 
this is not like watching, you know, Ronnie Peterson or something or Gilles Villeneuve where you can just hang the thing out and you've got a really good feel for where that cushion is. An IndyCar does not have that. Like it's still a, it's still a really high downforce car. It wants to be going straight. The aerodynamics work the best when the car is totally like straight at low yaw. Um, the tire does not withstand a high degree of slip before it really starts to lose grip. So this, it's, I guess this is all just to say that find figuring out that last little bit and kind of understanding it is not an easy thing to do, particularly coming from Jimmy's background where nothing he's ever driven kind of has those types of characteristics. So I think that did I sort of just for no particular reason, expect that this, these moments would come a little earlier in the season. Yes. Just cause he's Jimmy Johnson. He's seven time champ. Like, I don't know. It just, I thought that you figured that like he's really good. So he'll start figuring some of these things out earlier. But when you, when you put it in the context of just like a guy that's never done this, regardless of how skilled he is. Um, and then you, you add on top of that, that it's like race weekend after race weekend, after race weekend, after race weekend, there's no testing. There's no nothing. You know, the simulator doesn't give you any of those things. Simulator helps you figure out the track and you know, whatever else, but it doesn't, it, it just by definition doesn't, I mean, the thing that we all, all, every race car driver ever complains about, about every simulator is it doesn't give you a sense of like oversteer or yaw or slip or whatever, any of those things, you just don't get a feel for them in the sim, the way that you do in the car. Um, so, you know, it's, it's, uh, with how competitive the series is, it's taken a while for him to get to the point that he's just making those little steps. But I think from where he's at now, um, he's had a couple of weekends where he's had sort of flawless weekends just in terms of getting through races, you know, no, no spins, no crashes, no, none of that stuff that I think is, you know, building his confidence. And, um, you know, now, now I think it's that next step of just, you know, now he's got a little bit of confidence, I think, in terms of how the car works underneath him to be able to then start thinking, you know, have a little bit more bandwidth at that point to work the car through a stint, work the car in traffic, drive against guys, you know, be, be right up against guys with that car that is more t- sensitive and touchy than he's used to, you know, uh, kind of with his muscle memory from the past. So I think that's the next step for Jimmy. And, and you can see that I think internally he's getting excited about making some of these little gains um, and can kind of internalize that from the perception from the outside. Like, I think he knows now that he's got a platform where he can get a little bit better. He's seen some of that improvement happen. He knows just from the feeling of the car that it's happening um, to be able to, you know, dig into another off season and start taking this on a little more seriously next year. Just wanted to pick you up on a, a little point you made there about the tire and kind of sense it. You know, I think basically, you know, a little bit of what you were talking about there about getting the power down and, and just knowing when you can, you know, just these guys just have an inbuilt knowledge because they know the car so well of, you know, when the, when they can, you know, risk, risk things, you know, how early you can get the throttle down and how much you can risk things on warm tires versus cold tires. And I just think it's worth mentioning just for maybe people who are new to IndyCar or or people who would like to see like a bit of a repeat example of this, but there's no better example of what you've described is when people are coming out of the pits. And we saw a great example of that at Portland where, Obviously, I think it was the was it the second or the third stops the the kind of round of stops where everyone was overcutting or undercutting each other towards the end of the race, and we saw 
Alex Pillow come out. We saw Alex Rossi come out. We saw Scott Dixon come out. We saw Joseph Newgarden come out and the camera, the, the race direction on the TV had no choice but to, to watch those guys coming out of the pit. So we got quite a bit of onboard and we saw people genuinely racing wheel to wheel while on freezing cold tires. And this is not like Formula One where they come out on semi-warm tires. Like these things are stone cold. So all you need to see is a bit of onboard from when the tires are cold to see how difficult things are. And the, the, the reason why I mentioned this now is because the one person who really visibly kind of got things wrong was Dixon, who was passed by Rossi. And you can't say he got things wrong because he's coming out on a set of freezing cold tires. Like for God's sake, it's not, it's not done a bad thing, but it's, it's one of those kind of variables where the other guys, not that Dixon doesn't know how hard to push or where the limit is, but it's so easy to cross that limit, especially when the tires are cold, obviously. But that was just a great example of how difficult these Indy cars can be to do something as simple as get the power down and, and just accelerate out of a corner because obviously in that situation, the, the tires are not helping you out. So that's a that's a good example. I think if you go back and watch the, the race broadcast, it's a good opportunity to see how busy these guys' hands are and just how much effort goes into those outlaps, which are, you know, I think we've spoken about earlier in the season when things are so competitive and we're seeing people, you know, we use qualifying as an example quite often. People are missing out by 0.0089 seconds from, from making it through to the top six to get through in qualifying to the top 12. Like when things are that close, outlaps are so, and inlaps are so important when it comes to just get, even if it's just gaining three or four attempts, because as we see, sometimes overtaking can be quite difficult. And if you can make up a spot or two in the pits, then obviously that's going to be a massive benefit. So yeah, I think that's a good example for people to, to head back and watch if you if you want to get an idea of how how these cars can move around and how difficult they can be to kind of see the limit. I just want to jump back in on on sort of the rundown from before because I had a couple of thoughts about a few of those other guys. The heart Jack, just kind of going backwards to back to front. You mentioned Jack Harvey. He has been the guy. Like I've been at a couple of races over the course of this year and watched certainly on on TV that he's been like crazy fast in, in races a number of times. Like he's been the fastest guy on the racetrack for entire stints, like faster than the leaders on the same type of strategy. It is kind of amazing to me that they have not managed to have a better result this year. And I, I, like, I feel, I felt bad for him watching the race yesterday, even though it was like, this should probably be a race where he's in contention for the win, just based on how good they were pace wise in the race. Um, uh, but obviously, obviously not. We saw Andretti. I think it will be interesting going in these last couple of races and Andretti seems to the Andretti group. We'll just say generally seems to have kind of gotten it together. And we've, we know we, we've talked about this, that Colton's been fast all year and just hasn't really managed the res- managed to pick up the results that, that sort of reflect that. But, um, I think they'll, they're sort of the, the spoilers going in these last two events because, for sure, these are two tracks in Lagoon and Long Beach that those guys, drivers and cars, have consistently been quite good at. For Callum, to, to be in a one-car team in this situation, it's just it's just like a lot to ask. To go to these places that he's never driven at and not have relevant data to look at and not going testing and doing all this kind of stuff, these are, I mean, these are hard weekends that you couldn't expect the best guy from anywhere in particular to come in, get in that car, not have teammates, you know, not be familiar with the car and do much more than what, what he's, what he did over the course of this weekend. So I think it's kind of unfortunate that it's hard to keep that perspective 
um, it will continue to be hard to keep that perspective. You know, you, you, I think people will, will look at this and go, oh, well, he's he's had a couple of weekends under his belt now by the time he gets to Long Beach or something. But like Long Beach is a, you know, crazy street circuit. It's like it's like showing up to Macau or something and having to just go in a car that may or may not be in the window. That you, and you you won't know that at all over the course of the weekend because you don't have a teammate to to base it off of against a bunch of guys that are really fast there that have been going there for a decade. So from my perspective, if, if he, if he has like notable results in any session at any point over the next two weekends, like we should be seriously congratulating and, and like recognizing that. Agree. Oliver on the other side of this, I think did an awesome job just to go in and show that he's got the pace he's done that. He did that at road America earlier um, you know, the, the, I think you were right that in the race, it didn't really kind of looked like he just carried too much speed and was the one guy that managed to sort of have an issue without collecting anybody else doing it. So we'll give him like a little pat on the back for that. Um, an easy thing to do there. He stayed out of everybody's way, you know, without taking somebody out and, and clearly has quite a bit of pace. I'm looking forward to, I hope that he gets this, you know, third car gig there just to see just to see what he can do again over the course of a season in a different environment and Graham to kind of finish this off like you said um he's actually been he's been great this year this has been one of his better years in IndyCar I think um he's had some super mature drives um I mean how calm he was on the radio was it was like I found myself rooting for him a little bit just to like have a, you know, whether he was going to win or not, there was a lot of, a lot of ways that he was going to end up not winning that race, but um, just to be, to at least have been in the hunt for it at the end would have been great to see for, for him and that organization. So, um, you know, we'll see what they can show up with over these last two. These, these could be events that, you know, he can continue to fight for it and, it'd be a, a good thing for Ray Hall Letterman to be able to head into the off season with a strong finish to the year, for sure. Obviously a lot said about him and his driving position and, you know, his dad owning the team and all that kind of stuff. But all you need to do is go back and kind of adjust the, uh, adjust a couple of incidents where he's been taken out of a race through no fault of his own. And he's suddenly easily in the championship picture. And, you know, I, I'm not advocating for him to be in that position because, it doesn't look like he's capable of winning a race at the moment. So if you can't win a race, you're not going to win the championship. So there's no point advocating that he should be in the championship hunt because at the moment it doesn't look like they're quite where they need to be to get a race win. Funnily enough, the only place that they did look like that was possible was the Indy 500 where it's double points. So that would have obviously set them up brilliantly. But, you know, it's 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 one of those things. I think we all know Graham's kind of pros and cons by now. And, you know, his consistency over the past two seasons has been pretty uh pretty phenomenal but they've really got to find some upside in that team and maybe uh a little bit of a shake up in the the driver market is the the way for them to do that what is to ask you about laguna seca jail have you raced at laguna seca before uh it's been a really long time because i didn't race there in we t- we always tested there we had spring training uh for atlantics but i didn't yeah race there ever so it's kind of a weird like oh, it's weird think, thinking was, about that. Like, why yeah, do we have yeah. spring training at a track that we weren't going to race? Anyway, from 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 what you do know, Jr., we know you've done a lot. Yeah, was there. It's been a minute. Been, I, I raced like F two thousand there back in the yeah. day. Yeah. So what 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 the 
you know, from from knowing what you know about the track and also obviously what you know about the current IndyCar, what are they going to be the, you know, the key things for us to look for? Are they going to take? Obviously, the, the attention is always on the corkscrew and everyone loves the corkscrew and blah, blah, blah. Corkscrew, corkscrew, corkscrew. But what, what should we actually be looking for over the course of the weekend there, really? Jack hates the corkscrew. No, I actually um, love the corkscrew. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I'm doing uh, that because I am the original corkscrew fanboy, I think. <laughs> um. I mean, the biggest thing, the biggest thing really uh, just over the course of the weekend, the thing that's going to matter, I think about the, well, there's two things, I guess. One is it's a super short lap. There's no passing zones. Um, It's, it's a tight, I guess it's not like a tight circuit, but it's just, it's a very difficult place to, it's a very difficult place to pass. Um, The flip side to that is it has maybe the most extreme tire wear over the course of a stint as anywhere on the IndyCar schedule does. And that's partially just because the track itself hasn't been repaved or anything in a long time. So it's, and it's, so from that perspective, like as long as it's not really cool for the whole weekend, um, which is always, there's always a chance for that at Laguna, but um, especially, I guess I put it this way, especially if it's, if it's warm, like if the sun is on the track surface, it'll be even worse this year than it was the last time that we were here because it's just a circuit that's doing that. And it's funny that I was talking to some, I was overhearing some conversations actually at uh, 24 hours Daytona about the sort of circuit at Laguna and, and management and all that kind of stuff that the sports car guys all want for it to get repaved. Um, but the IndyCar guys typically are uh, lobbying for it not to get repaved just because it's the one thing that actually makes it a pretty good race yeah. is the fact that you have this massive variable, which is like really heavy tire deg, uh, particularly rear tires. It just will, it just eats tires one way or the other. So um, that's kind of the thing to look for. The Andretti guys have had this place dialed for, you know, a little bit here, it feels like. Um, Colton obviously is really good at this particular track. Alexander is good here too. Those guys are, I would be shocked if the two of those guys aren't fast six, you know, in the hunt for the win. Um, you know, Penske cars have been kind of on and off good at this place. Joseph did not have a good run at this track, um, when he won the championship in, in 19. So I think that'll be, that's, that to me is kind of the variable that's in, that'll be interesting to watch here is just where does Joseph stack up kind of in terms of outright pace. I mean, it's probably more of that for me than um, you, the, the Penske cars typically are pretty good on, on where, or kind of they're, you, they're not, a, they're not a team or an organization that you're going to expect them to like really fall off. But as the one guy that's, if he has a huge event at Laguna, then he's potentially still in it. Um, you know, he can leapfrog Pato, I think pretty easily to get into the, to, to go into long beach with a shot. Like you said, just in terms of like the championship picture, what could make it interesting? Like you said, going to long beach where, um, Alex maybe is not going to be favored to be right at the front. And, uh, you know, Joseph, I'd be surprised if he's, if he's not right in the thick of it, like front row kind of quality at long beach. So, uh, those are the things that I'm I'm looking at is just what what does it really seem like the outright paces for where guys are going to qualify because track position does definitely count for something at Laguna. Um, and from there, over the course of the race, it's just going to be, you know, who can make it to the end of that first stint without seeming like they're, you know, 
falling completely off the side of a cliff. It's going to be very interesting. We know Roman Grosjean loves it around Laguna Seca, thanks to Gran Turismo. So he'll be desperate to be to make up for taking out James Hindcliffe at the first turn, as we as we said earlier on. So that'll be a good storyline to watch. We know Roman's excitement is infectious, and something tells me he'll be very excited this weekend to to go to the track that he picked out before the season started as his favourite, um, or maybe not his favourite because he's not done it yet, but, you know, is the track that he was most looking forward to, you know, for the second half of the season or the season in general. So that'll be very interesting to see. Thanks for joining us on this episode of the Race IndyCar podcast. We'll be back next week to round up Laguna Seca and preview the title finale at Long Beach. <laughs>